a country mostly of children. It was a very young nation uh, and very poor and we're beating the heck out of them. And it's like, what, what is this? Is this what my country's about? I thought my country was fighting for democracy and fighting, you know, the Soviet Union, which at least seemed like a fair fight. But then you come to see that, no, we're fighting poor people. I switch sides is what I, I, in the Cold War, I openly switch sides. And I never switch back. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) This is an interview with Dan Kovalik. Dan is a professor of international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And he is the author of the new book, No More War. How the West Violates International Law by Using Humanitarian Intervention. I was with Dan in Damascus, Syria, earlier this year, and his new article in RT is entitled, I've Seen for Myself the Horrific Toll Western Sanctions Are Having on the People of Syria and Lebanon. But so, I want to hear Dan, so how about this? Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'll introduce myself. Great. As you know, I teach international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. I've been a peace activist my whole life, uh, whole adult life, I should say. Um, written several books. I guess that's about all I need to say about that for now. As well as uh, an international traveler and activist. Let's make yes, sure I that. am indeed. I am indeed. In fact, I'm between trips. I was just got back from Nicaragua and I'm on my way back to Syria next week. So. That's right. Um, and, you know, in reading your recent article um, at on in RT, um, I hadn't realized that you, this was not your first time in Nicaragua, correct? No, I, I got my start doing this type of work when I was 19. I went to Nicaragua um, yeah. in 1987. It was during the Contra War. I did reforestation work up in Ocatal, which is a city on the Honduran border. So it was a war zone. And I lived there for a month. Hmm. And it blew my mind. That changed my life. This is what it comes down to. That that was what made me a lifetime anti-imperialist activist after that trip. And it was, was it because, I mean, one, I guess just, you know, the first time we leave the empire, I feel like we start thinking more clearly. Um, but so I always think that about international activists like yourself, like that's, that's why your analysis is better because you actually leave and see the places. Um, but was it seeing the, the violence of the imperialist attack on Nicaragua? Yeah. I mean, and I didn't see, just to be clear, I didn't see much violence. I did go to a funeral of a young man who was killed by the countries while I was there. Um, I heard gun, you know, uh, gunfire at night, uh, machine gun fire. Um, but what I witnessed more closely was the extreme poverty people were living in at the time, uh, poverty that was, uh, was caused by the U.S. embargo, by the war. This was a fledgling revolutionary government, the Sandinista government, which came to power in 1979, I guess I should explain for some people who don't know about this. Um, They overthrew a U.S.-backed dictatorship. 
uh, the dictator then was Anastasio Somoza. I believe he was the third Somoza that was uh, the dictator there. And very quickly, after, you know, the, the Sandinistas came to power uh, wanting to bring literacy to the country, which they did pretty quickly, actually, uh, but also wanting to bring prosperity and health care um, and, uh, you know, a higher living standard to the people, which became fairly impossible given the country war. The U.S. supported, took Samoa's National Guard. Carter did this in, in, in before he left office. He flew the National Guard to the Honduran border. And it was there that the U.S. assembled the countries, what would become the countries. And it was largely uh, led by the National Guard under the command of the CIA. And that's not even in dispute. I mean, that, that's an established fact that that was the case. With help, by the way, of the fascist Argentine junta, which also provided training for the countries. And... So the Contras molested Nicaragua throughout the 1980s, and they were terrorists. And in fact, the CIA had a manual they put out about what the Contras and others who opposed the government should do. And essentially, it was calling for terrorism, destroying electrical plants, clinics, killing doctors, killing engineers, killing judges. The Contras had no popular support, so they never controlled one uh, you know, blade of grass in Nicaragua, but they were able to commit mayhem, prevent development during this period. And so, you know, in 87, eight years into the war, it was a very difficult time for Nicaragua. The initial excitement of the revolution had faded. Um, the reality that they were fighting uh, against these forces that were backed by the United States had sunk in. It was a very difficult time. So I witnessed kids in, in a state that I'd never seen in my life. Kids literally in rags, no shoes. Where I, The city I was in, Ocatal, you know, it had no clean water. I, I mean, and again, I personally experienced this. I was sick for a month. I lost 20 pounds in a month and um, was sick for, for a month. And I don't say that to complain or to virtue signal, but to say that this is how people lived then. Most of the roads were dirt roads. They didn't have paved roads. But what impressed me or what struck me was, okay, my country, the wealthiest country on earth, is at war with these people. They didn't even have 3 million people at that time. A country mostly of children, there's a very young nation, uh, and very poor, and we're beating the heck out of them. And it's like, what? what is this? Is this what my country's about? I thought my country was fighting for democracy and fighting, you know, the Soviet Union, which at least seemed like a fair fight. But then you come to see that, no, we're fighting poor people. And it really struck me. And I was Catholic at the time, Roman Catholic, and so was Nicaragua. So that was the other thing, like we're persecuting this poor little Catholic country. Um, so that blew my mind, you know, and also I saw some things that, you know, also inspired me. I met a lot of internationals there who were there to help, not just from the U.S., but from Canada, from Russia, from Cuba, from East Germany, 
remember, East Germany. Uh, the East Germans were very helpful to Nicaragua. And uh, I was told, for example, that the Soviet Union had brought a tanker of um, a fuel, I think it was. It was a, some tanker with humanitarian aid to Nicaragua. And they just left the tanker there for the Nicaraguans to use. They just left it there. And I, I was impressed by these stories. And I actually left. When I left, I, I joined the Communist Party as soon as I came back. Um, I switched sides is what I, I in the Cold War, I openly switched sides and I never switched back. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and, you know, in the it's it's hard to think that it's, you know, it, it's 30 years, over 30 years since you made that trip. Um, and we've seen these tactics used over and over and over in the Balkans, in Serbia, in former Yugoslavia, in in Syria, in Iraq, um, the the arming and training of of terrorist groups as the 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 sort of tip of the sphere of this economic war to wage war on poor and oppressed people all, all over the world. Um, now that it's thirty years later. And you just got back from Nicaragua. What what if what are you seeing there? Well, first of all, um, the difference between Nicaragua then and now is is stark. It's night and day. Um, Ocotal now is a beautiful, brand new hospital that the Sandinistas has built. The roads are now incredible. They're better than they are in Pittsburgh. I can tell you that these beautiful paved highways. Uh, healthcare there is free. You do not see the type of poverty that I saw back then. You don't see the homelessness like you see in the U.S. Um, things are much better for the Nicaraguan people now uh, because of the Sandinistas. They, there was a dark period from 1990 to 2006 in which uh, neoliberal governments were in power. And that was because the U.S., really successfully, in a way, overthrew the Sandinista government in 1990. They, the Sandinistas agreed to elections, early elections. They had been elected in 1984. That was the first free and fair elections ever in um, Nicaraguan history, um, certainly at least since Somoza in 1934. And in 1990, they agreed to elections, and the U.S. put a gun to Nicaragua's head. They made it very clear. In fact, the ambassador of the U.S. to Nicaragua traveled around with the opposition to their campaign rallies and made it clear. You have a choice. You can vote, vote for the Sandinistas, and if you do, the Contra War will continue. The sanctions will continue. The embargo will continue. But if you vote for the other person tomorrow, all those things will go away and we'll give you some humanitarian aid. And so with that stark choice, the people voted for tomorrow. And, um, and, and, it, and it entered a very dark time when, you know, neoliberal policies were put in pay, place, free health care and education were ended. Uh, the literacy campaign was ended. Chamorro also just really uh, was a traitor, really. She gave away all this land to Colombia, uh, sold off their railway station, uh, their, their railroad system. I didn't even know they had one. Um, and did nothing. The, so for 16 years, the government did nothing for the people, didn't electrify the country, 
didn't do anything. So once the Sandinistas, though, come to power in 2007, they reinstitute free health care. They institute, reinstitute free education. They start to electrify the com- country. At that point, it was about 50% electrified. It's now nearly 100% electrified. There's now free Wi-Fi all over Nicaragua. Um, it's now almost 100% food sovereign, meaning almost all the food they eat, they grow. In fact, they now export food. They just sent a shipment of food to Cuba. So what I've witnessed was an incredible development of that country, despite the Contra War, despite the sanctions, despite just the harassment of this tiny country for years and years by the United States. Um, but I wanted—I do want to mention quickly, um, you know, about what you were talking about about the U.S. using terrorist forces like the Contras to overthrow independent governments, whether they be socialist or just countries that are independent and, 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 and want to go their own way, like Iraq, for example. Um, there is a famous case. In fact, it's one of, if, if any standard uh, international law textbook has this as one of the first cases in the book, uh, the case of Nicaragua versus the United States. It's a case Nicaragua brought to the International Court of Justice, the highest court in the world, and they won it in 1986. And what it said was, it said many things, but one thing it said, it is illegal under international law for a country to back um, uh, armed dissident groups within another country. Whatever the reason. And in fact, in the decision, the court dealt with the question of humanitarian interventionism and said it doesn't exist under international law. It's not legal. And even assuming they said that, that the U.S. somehow was doing this to promote human rights and democracy, which they didn't believe that, but they said assuming that were true, it still wouldn't have given them the right to do this. So this is a very important case. Of course, the U.S. never complied with it, uh, Never, certainly never complied with the direction of, of compensation to Nicaragua, but also didn't abide by the cease and desist order. They were told to stop arming the countries, and the U.S. continued to, even though it has to be pointed out, because again, a lot of people don't know this history, even though the U.S. Congress in 1987 officially cut off funding to the countries. And so Reagan... President Reagan decided, I'm going to keep funding them anyway, illegally. So he had two schemes to do this. One was to sell weapons to Iran, which was illegal at the time. Iran, under U.S. law, because we had uh, um, declared Iran a terrorist state, and so uh, there was an arms embargo against Iran. But despite that, he sold arms to Iran. By the way, at a time, the U.S. was also militarily supporting Iraq in attacking Iran. So we're literally supporting both sides of the conflict. Um, so and then he used the money from the arms uh, shipments to back the countries. But the other even more nefarious thing we did, and this was exposed by a journalist named Gary Webb out of the San Jose Mercury News, is the CIA helped traffic cocaine into U.S. cities particularly into black uh, areas of cities, um, and use the proceeds to fund the countries. 
And so this is an incredible historical fact. This is at a time when Reagan is also having a war on drugs. His, uh, his, the first lady, Nancy Reagan, was the one who came up with the Just Say No campaign. If you remember that, Just Say No to Drugs. Meanwhile, their CIA is freaking selling drugs on the streets. And everyone agrees this happened, okay? At the time, Gary Webb was vilified for saying he was held up uh, with scorn by papers like the New York Times, whatever, and apparently driven to suicide, although, you know, uh, he was shot with two bullets. Usually that's hard to pull off if you're doing it yourself. Um, But it was officially declared a suicide. But by now, the New York Times and other papers that went after him now admit he was even more right than he knew that that, that the uh, cocaine for the Contras project was even worse than he had imagined. So, you know, we learn a lot from that type of history and we see it being repeated, as you say, over and over again. Um, I think most um, evidently now with the U.S. using these Colombian paramilitaries to ass- assassinate people in Venezuela, which has happened, including Robert Serra, the congressman who was killed in 2017 by Colombian paramilitaries. And, of course, we see this happen in Haiti, where scores of Colombian paramilitaries are caught red-handed assassinating the president. And of course, the assassination of uh, the Honduran indigenous activist, Berta Cáceres. Exactly. And so what we see is a continuation of this type of cultural warfare, that the U.S. is using surrogates around the world to, to carry out its dirty deeds. And then, of course, Um, It gives the U.S. a certain amount of deniability for those crimes, right? That Iran-Contra scandal, as it's as it's referred to now, I think it was one of the most important modern revelations of how the empire works. Um, In particular, the the connection that you brought in as a result of Gary Webb's reporting about the connection between the U.S. wars abroad and the U.S. war here domestically um by the way did you ever see that the uh, like the original new york times headline that tried to smear gary webb's reporting i'm not sure i did the greatest new york times subtitle of all time which is cia finds no link between itself craft trade (laughs) yeah yeah what a great uh i'm sure they did a great investigation of (laughs) um and you know you you lay out very well how these tactics work and how they are linked. I mean, you said in one way you, you didn't see firsthand the, that type of paramilitary violence in Nicaragua in 1987, but you did see the other kind of violence, the, the, the imposition of, of poverty. Um, and I wanted to ask you also about um, international sanctions. Um, recently, it's, it feels like the, these sanctions acts have like almost purposely creepy names, like in Syria, the Caesar Act, the Caesar sanctions. And in Nicaragua, uh, the you you wrote recently about the 
It's the it's an acronym, Renacer, which means rebirth. Incredibly creepy. But could you talk about that that legislation as well? Yeah. So all these uh, types of sanctions regimes, while they always claim to only be sanctioning a few government officials or whatever, what they do is make it impossible for these countries to obtain life-saving supplies on, on, on the open market, like medicine, like food. Um, it makes it difficult to impossible for these countries to get international financing. Um, for example, Nicaragua has used international financing from the World Bank and IMF to do a lot of its social programs, build housing, etc. And it has been applauded by both those organizations for that, as had Venezuela been. Um, and these types of sanctions regimes make it harder, if not impossible, for those countries to get that sort of financing. Um, and it also, you know, especially in the case of Syria, makes it impossible for Syria to really function at all in the Western economy. You know, you and I were there, um, what, about two months ago, and we saw that firsthand. We couldn't use our credit cards there, couldn't use debit cards there. Um, you know, you had to bring all the cash, whatever you needed, you had to bring it in cash because they literally are cut off from the world, at least the Western economic system, which, of course, is, is, is just brutal uh, because the West and the U.S. in particular control most of the world's finance. You know, and if you can't use the SWIFT system, for example, to move money around, um, it's very hard to conduct any business in, in the world. And that's exactly what what um, the U.S. Uh, is doing, cutting countries off from that sort of system um, and then cutting them off, frankly, from the rest of the world physically. So in the case of Syria, you cannot fly into Syria. I mean, the other, if you fly into Moscow, you might be able to if you pay in cash at the counter for the Syrian airline, but it's practically impossible. So, as you know, we had to fly to Beirut and then drive into Damascus. Similarly, with Nicaragua and uh, Venezuela, at least at last check, and it might have changed with Nicaragua a bit, but both countries were major transit spots where, you know, there are several airlines, U.S. airlines were flying into Venezuela up to a few years ago. You know, I could get a flight from Pittsburgh on American to Miami, Miami to Caracas or Miami to Managua. You can't now. There were, at least the last time I went to Venezuela, <clears throat> which was about, what, a month ago, and then Nicaragua, which was a couple weeks ago, um, there was literally not, no U.S. airlines flying into either country. In the case of Venezuela, was that did that change take place in 2014 after the Obama administration designated it a national security threat? Is that what made that change happen? It, it, it slowly changed after that. It didn't immediately change. I think as of 2000, I was there for the 2018 elections, it's my recollection I was still able to get that American, which was the last holdout, was still flying into there. Delta had left. Um, United had left. But I think American was still going there. Oh, in fact, I know that was true because I'll tell you, uh, as I was there, Air France had announced they were going to stop flying. And a bunch of Europeans on our delegation were stuck. They, they wouldn't fly them back. Wow. wow. And I remember thinking to myself, crap, I hope American doesn't 
do that to me. And American stopped very shortly after that. And it was done for several reasons. Uh, it wasn't because of the sanctions per se, though. Under Trump, Trump kind of formalized this by saying no U.S. pilots were allowed to fly into Caracas. But before then, it wasn't illegal, but it was being made harder and harder, you know, by the sanctions because Venezuela was having trouble paying fees to the airlines. And also uh, because of some, you know, insecurity in Caracas, the airlines were afraid or claimed to be afraid for their crews. Um, so basically one after the other stopped flying. And then when Nicaragua, um, they stopped flying uh, pretty recently, I think this year. Um, and again, it was, they made that decision largely on their own, but again, sanctions played a huge, huge part of that. So the point is, it's very hard to get to these places. You know, you have to, to get to Venezuela, I flew to Cancun, stayed overnight because there was no f flight after the time I got there and boarded a flight the next day to get to to Caracas had to change airlines. Um, and then to Nicaragua, I flew American to Nicaragua, but then had to get off, leave the terminal and go to Taka Airlines, the Salvadoran airline and fly uh, there. The point being is, so they're, they're cutting these countries uh, off from tourism, which have been very important in Nicaragua and, and Venezuela in particular, used to be for Syria. I mean, no one in their right mind would consider Syria a, a tourist destination right now, but, but the, it, even if they did, they, they wouldn't be able to get there. No one's going to go to Beirut and drive there. No, no, not for vacation. Again, unless you're a very hardy person. You know, so it, again, it cuts them off from the world. It cuts them off from tourism. And by the way, I'll say something about Syria, which has to be said, you know, uh, this is a very profound statement that my friend Roger Harris, I don't know if you know him, but he writes a lot. He's an anti-imperialist, but he also, by profession, is a bird biologist. And he takes people around the world. His job is incredible. He takes Saudi princes and rock stars around the world, gives them tours, uh, and this sort of thing. And he told me, he says, Dan, he said, 20 years ago, more or less, he said, I would ask everyone on my tours. And again, these were well-traveled people. If you had one place you could go in the world, where was it? And they all said Syria. Syria was a destination point. And you and I saw why. I mean, this is a country with huge, incredible antiquities. Even despite the war, Damascus is about the safest city I've ever been in. I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible, right? And the people are kind and it's just visually stunning. And even our travels outside the city, particularly to like Malula, um, were incredible. I mean, what the sights you can see. And in the day, of course, it, you could easily travel to, to Palmyra and see the Roman ruins. I don't even know how much left is of the ruins because of the terrorists that, um, you know, purposefully destroyed antiquities and ruins and whatnot. But this was a place people, it was very safe and people loved to go there. Um, and now it's been destroyed as a destination place. And of course, countries live and die on, on the dollars that come in from that sort of tourism. But it's not just that. They lose 
the cultural exchange that exists. They become very uh, isolated in a way that's very devastating for these countries. You know, when we were talking, you know, at one point in the not so distant past, one would often talk about the world getting smaller, right? Because it was easier to travel places. But really in the last 20 years, the world has gotten much bigger because you cannot get to Palestine anymore, for example. It's very hard to get there. And there's literally a wall <laughs> that was built between uh, uh, Gaza and, and, and Israel. You cannot get from Jerusalem to Damascus. It's impossible. You might remember a guy named St. Paul actually walked that route, right? So the world is even bigger than it was back in biblical times. Can you imagine, right? You would think that the opposite would be happening, but it's not. The world, the, the West is cutting all these countries off from from the rest of the world and so it makes it hard for journalists to get there you know and all for example and again maybe i'm talking too much but like it always strikes me when i'm listening to npr and they're talking about syria invariably invariably the journalist will say this is joe blow reporting from beirut right no one's in syria there's no journalist in Syria from the West. So how can they tell? It's like me saying, you know, giving a story about crime in Chicago and saying, hey, this is Dan Kavalik reporting from Pittsburgh. What the hell do I know about crime in Chicago? You know, and I think that about this all the time, particularly when it comes to the U.S. official enemies, about the, the absurd reporting that we see about the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, uh, about Venezuela, about Syria, you know, I, uh, there's a great podcast called The East is a Podcast, uh, where the host, Sina Rahmani, who's um, an academic from, he's uh, Iranian in Toronto. And he said, uh, regarding China, he's like, we don't even have discursive access to China. Like, how, <laughs> how are people going to claim that they know, you know, what's going on? But this is, and that's, you know, the fact of the matter is, it was difficult for us to get back and forth across the border to Syria. But it's an important thing to do. And I mean, the way you described your travels, it's important because that's how you build international solidarity at a time where the freedom of movement is so under attack. I mean, you talked about in 1987, the, the Soviet solidarity to Nicaragua, the, the fact that there were East Germans there. You know, I, I was talking to John Catalanato from Workers World who was in Syria in the 70s and talking about all the friends that he met there from, from East Germany. Um, that, I, I think that's profound, Dan, the, the, the restriction of movement as another means of cutting off the solidarity of, and of that cultural exchange like you were talking about. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And you know what, anyone, again, to, to, to be nostalgic a little, everyone who went to Nicaragua in the 80s was profoundly moved by that. Everyone who's been to Cuba has been profoundly moved by that. And one of the biggest things you're moved by and that I was moved by in Syria was just meeting the people. Just meeting people who were kind and respectful and 
and and and offering so much hospitality to people from a country that's been destroying them. This always makes a huge impression on people. Though I had one interesting thing in in Beirut. I sat down at a restaurant, and <laughs> I've never had this experience. But the the waiter was like, "Oh, you're from the U.S." She goes, "You must hate Arabs, and you must hate is Muslims." I said, "No, no, not at all." And I guess I convinced him, and he and, and he and he was cool with that. Um, but most people don't think like that. Most people give Americans a lot of credit and that sort of thing. But also when you see the people that are suffering because of U.S. sanctions and the children who are suffering, you know, and in Syria, while I think it appeared to me much better off than I had feared before I went there, you know, I went out late at night and it was very safe, but there were kids on the street, little kids in the middle of the night begging. Um, I mean, little girls like five years old. you know, that is shocking to see. And you know that that didn't exist 10 years ago before the war, before the sanctions. And that's heartbreaking, you know, and that little child is not responsible for whatever has happened in that country, does not deserve to be punished. In fact, it's it's these this type of punishment against these countries, in fact, is a war crime because um, it, it, they are targeted against civilians. And, and everyone knows the sanctions disproportionately fall upon women and children. There's actually a great report on, on the sanctions against North Korea, which also reached that conclusion um, and which is generalizable to these other situations. The women and children are always the ones impacted. That's what's so frustrating. Uh, and it was really one of the, the main focuses of your recent RT article about the U.S. expressing concern for the people of these countries and expressing concern about democratic rights. When, you know, if you out of context were to see the suffering that's taking place in these countries, you would say, oh, that's horrible. You know, something has to be done, but they don't, the US media doesn't provide the context that it is US sanctions and US war that is causing this suffering. Yeah, and so, yeah, this is the game plan and it has been ever since the coup, CIA coup against Iran in 1953. The game plan is you starve out a population and then you blame them for starving. And then that justifies an intervention. And the media, as you say, is totally complicit in that because you rarely hear a story about Venezuela, for example, about Nicaragua, about Cuba. If they ever talk about the deprivations there, and there are real deprivations, um, they rarely talk about the sanctions. And so... You know, without that context, as you say, people are very willing to, to support an intervention because it's like, oh, we got to go in there and save them when we've been the ones killing them. I mean, it really is, as they say, it is the arsonists putting out the fire. Right. And that's something that I, you know, personally, I was very surprised, but also it was very interesting for me that, you know, when we were in Syria together, regular Syrian people you know, they will tell you like, well, you know, people in the U.S. are good people. You just have no idea. You have no idea. And the U.S. media plays on the sort of innate goodwill of working class regular folks in order to twist their perceptions of what, you know, something must be done. We hear that all the time, you know. I I wanted to ask you also um, about in sort of broader terms about the era of empire that we're in, because, you know, while 
while there are these terrible depredations and war crimes, like you said, in Syria, in Bolivia, in Venezuela, in you know the the embargo on Cuba that's now been over a half a century, um, we are also seeing a lot of failures on the part of the U.S. I mean, it, it is, for instance, the the U.S. military you know, doing this sort of tentative withdrawal from Afghanistan could be seen as a massive victory on the part of the Afghan people. Yeah. Uh, we saw that, you know, the way you described the election interference in uh, the early 90s in Nicaragua, that was not possible in Syria when we were there for the presidential elections. Um, are you seeing a sort of new international coalition of solidarity? Um, is the U.S. empire in decline? Um, what, do, what are your analysis on this? Well, I think, yeah, there is a coalition. In fact, there's this new coalition called the, uh, um, uh, what is it, the Friends, um, the Group of Friends in Defense of the U.N. Charter. And it's a group of maybe 15 countries, uh, China, Russia, Syria, Nicaragua, Venezuela, North Korea, some others, Iran, um, who are very clear that they want to defend the UN Charter, which at its heart is an anti-war charter. The purpose of the charter is to prevent war. And it has now been perverted by the US in particular and NATO into now they claim that somehow UN, the UN Charter and international law somehow allows and in fact demands war in certain cases, and this is insane. And so this group is trying to do that, but the, the same countries are also supporting each other economically. They wanna get off the dollar, they're trading now oil outside the dollar using you know Chinese uh, currency, Russian rubles. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, I think that group is important. And, and I think in many ways they're winning. Um, and in many ways, yes, the U.S. is in the U.S. empire is in decline. Having said that, you know, if you look at an Afghanistan and you look at a Libya and you look at a Vietnam, even in the 70s, 60s, 70s, it is true that the U.S. lost militarily. That is to say, they did not gain the military objective of unseating the Viet Minh in Vietnam or um, unseating Assad in Syria. Of course, in Libya, they did uh, uh, unseat and kill uh, Gaddafi. Um, but in all three countries, what they did manage to accomplish, at least for a time, Vietnam has come out of this largely, but Syria and Libya are still in it. So is Iraq, so is Afghanistan. They have destroyed these countries which they did to Korea too, they, especially North Korea. They bombed it to the Stone Age, right? They literally left no building over one story high intact. By the end of the Korean conflict, the Koreans were largely living underground in tunnels. And for good measure, the U.S. destroyed all 24 of the irrigation dams that had been built in Korea, leaving people to starve. Okay, so... What you have is objective A for the U.S. is always to overthrow the targeted government. 
But option B is, is just as acceptable to the U.S., and that is, okay, we can't topple you, but we will leave you, uh, you know, in power of a heap of rubble, if that's what you want. And in that sense, the U.S. has a, a, obtained a very important objective for itself. And what that does is make these states that the U.S. sees as a rival or a threat, it neutralizes them for years to come, if not forever, right? Um, because it's not clear some of these countries will ever be intact countries. Uh, but it also sends an example to other countries that want to be independent, like, hey, you want to try to be independent? You're going to end up like them. And a lot, a lot of people will say, well, then I don't want to do that. I don't, I'd rather, you know, takes guts to want to be independent and, and, and destroyed at the same time. In, in a way, I feel as though that there's a, a kind of example right in Palestine where, you know, you could make the argument that Gaza is a, a part of Palestine that has opted for complete resistance. And look at what, how the, the Zionists and the U.S., you know, and, and Western Empire has treated Gaza, um, whereas uh, there is still some semblance of sovereignty granted to, you know, the, the resistance in Ramallah, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gaza is a great example. I mean, Gaza has proven to be unvanquishable. And it is unvanquishable. Uh, the problem is, I think Israel and the U.S. would be happy just to, you know, the Palestinians will fight to the last man and woman, but sadly, the Israelis and the U.S. are willing to grant them that honor. It's true. It's true. And I think, you know, it's very important what you say about how there, there is a fallback plan for all of these, you know, imperial conquests, which is just complete genocide and devastation. I think also, you know, I'd be interested in getting your opinion on as this decline is in place and as a new axis of resistance forms. Um, if the U.S. is lashing out like a caged animal in, in, or as a dying animal, not caged animal. Um, you know, and one of the examples that I think of is um, the kidnapping of uh, Alex Saab. Um, you know, there are thousands of years of tradition of diplomatic immunity, and, and the U.S. decides that it's going to, to, to kidnap this, this Venezuelan diplomat. Could you talk a little bit... Um, about Alex Saab? Yes, yeah, so he, he's an interesting fellow. He's Lebanese um, by nationality, but he was, he's Colombian. Uh, he's a Colombian citizen, businessman, and also a diplomat for Venezuela. He was able to find ways to go around the U.S. sanctions to get Venezuela food, for example, to get them fuel. And in fact, he was on his way to Iran to negotiate a deal for fuel and food when his plan, his plane uh, landed to be refueled. He, they wanted to uh, refuel in mainland Africa, either Morocco or Senegal, I believe. Um, but those countries at the request of the U.S. would not let him land there. So he landed in the island nation of Cabo Verde, where uh, authorities were waiting for him to be arrested, again, at the behest of the United States. He has been uh, under arrest now, first in jail, now under uh, forced house arrest for over a year. 
And the U.S. is trying very hard to extradite him to the U.S., which he does not want to happen. Meanwhile, he has cancer. They have not been treated, giving him proper health care uh, of any kind, but including for his cancer. And, um, you know, so basically he's being tortured, being held um, incommunicado. Um, and meanwhile, he has won every legal case he's brought so far in Cabo Verde, in the African Union, at the UN Human Rights Committee. Everybody that's reviewed this has said his arrest and, uh, you know, proposed extradition are unlawful. And yet the U.S. persists. They even sent a warship to the shores of Cabo Verde to make sure no one would liberate him. This is incredible for one guy who, even if he did the worst of what they claimed, some sort of illegal money laundering, uh, is not a violent crime. This guy doesn't represent a threat to anyone. Um, but the U.S. does this sort of thing all the time. Remember in the bombing of Serbia, for example, the U.S. intentionally bombed the Chinese embassy. Um, the U.S. shows no regard for international law. The U.S. helped create the International Criminal Court, but makes it clear never, never um, um, ratified the agreement. So the U.S. is not a party to it. And now that the ICC said it wants to investigate U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, it, it is sanctioned members of the International Criminal Court. Um, the, the point is diplomacy, international law, is, as far as the U.S. is concerned, all those things are fine for other countries. Those are for suckers. Uh, the U.S. has military might, so we don't care about those things. And to acknowledge, for instance, the International Criminal Court would be to acknowledge an authority higher than the U.S. military. Well, exactly. And similarly, the International Court of Justice, which the U.S. helped to create. It was created by the U.N. Charter. The U.S. was one of the drafters of the U.N. Charter, of the Charter for the International Court of Justice. And after the Nicaragua case, the U.S. slowly started backing out of the International Court of Justice uh, they just lost a case to Iran over sanctions, and after that made it clear that they will not subject themselves to the general jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, that they will only – they will decide when uh, they will be subject to that. And, and basically what that means is they will go to the International Court of Justice to go after other countries, but they will not allow other countries to go after them. It is not a, a legal system. If the law does not work for everyone, if it does not bind the strong as much as the weak, it's not a law. It's the law of the jungle. And that's the way the U.S. wants it. So, Dan, you are going to be traveling back to Lebanon and Syria um, could you let folks know um, where they can um, find your work, where they can follow you on social media, and, and a little bit about uh, what you're going to be doing back in the region? Yes, I will, Ted, and thank you for this opportunity. I really appreciate it, and I appreciated our time in Syria together. We had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. We really did. <laughs> Hope we can do that again. So people can find me on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik. They can find me at, on Facebook at Dan Kavalik, K-O-V-A-L-I-K. They can find my books at skyhorsepublishing.com. Uh, and I do write 
uh, pretty frequently for RT uh, news. Um, I am going to Syria as part of a, a team uh, of, of documentarians to do a documentary on the war in Syria. So pretty excited about that. Going to be there for about two and a half weeks, traveling throughout the country there. And uh, yeah, hopefully within a year and a half or so, you'll be able to see that movie. Uh, Dan, thank you so much for, for your time and, and safe travels, and we look forward to, to all the work that's going to come out of it. Thank you, Ted. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Workers World Podcast. Hear more at workers.org.